Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our bi-weekly podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to Season 2, Episode 3 on the History of Black Costume Designers, Safety Pins and Characters with Charlize. Today, we are talking about the history of black costume designers, and I'm very excited about it because of so many things that we're going to get into in a few, but you also just want to make sure that you listen to this episode until the end because I have a very special product announcement for the podcast, and I'm not trying to hear y'all say I didn't tell y'all about it before I release it, okay? So y'all get the exclusive here on the podcast before the rest of the interwebs will learn about it. So stick around all the way until the end. Now, back to today's topic. I know that some of y'all might be wondering, Toya, how do we get to this subject? Like, what inspired this episode on black costume designers? And let me tell you, hear me out. I think it's safe to assume that we've all watched TV and movies at some point in our life. And many of us may have consumed a lot more TV than usual during this quarantine. I know I have. And so after seeing that one of my friends, our guest today, Charlize, who will be schooling us on the history of costume design, did costume design for a movie about the Black Panther Party. And y'all know how dope the Black Panther Party's dressed and how dope they were and just in terms of their ideologies. I started to think about the roles that characters' outfits play in TV and film. And I know I'm not the only one that's ever watched a movie and drooled over the costumes and the characters' drip. I know I did for the Black Panther movie, which costumes were designed by a black woman, and we'll talk about her later on in the episode. And so, do you ever wonder who dreams up the char- what the characters will look like? Because I do. And in this episode, we're going to get into all of that. And just this whole thought process that I just walked you through caused me to realize, A, how important costumes are. Costumes are one of the many tools that directors have to tell a story, and costumes communicate the details of a character's personality to the viewers, and it also helps the actors transform into a new believable person on screen. In a way, costume design illustrates the script in a non-verbal way, bringing forth different layers and truths and elements to the story that could otherwise be lost in the script. The words in the script can't always capture everything, right? You need the clothing, you need the setting and all that other stuff. That was one of the things that I realized in the thought process for this episode. B was just how important black and brown costume designers are in telling our stories in TV and film. Because at one point, 
we were not even allowed to be on TV and film. Like, think minstrelsy. But also, black and brown folks were not even allowed to tell our own stories or see ourselves reflected in different stories and characters. And so, for decades, black costume designers have not only authentically portrayed black characters on screen, they've also used costumes as a political tool to convey messages of freedom, beauty, pride, triumph. And so, for black and brown costume designers, they're preserving people of color's histories and stories. And I am forever grateful for that. So those are the two things that inspired today's episode on the history of black costume design with Charlize, who was another friend of mine that's chatting it up with us today on the podcast. Charlize, who's been killing the design game for a minute, has designed for 10 remarkable feature films over the last 10 years. Sis has done costume design for shows like Raising Dion that was on Netflix and I believe it was number one internationally. She also did another Netflix series, the original sketch comedy show, um, Astronomy Club. And just her whole resume is super impressive. She's worked on projects with Warner Brothers, Columbia Pictures, NBC, ABC, Fox, Showtime, Sony, Hulu. I've already said Netflix, but that's just to name a few. And recently, she has been getting all her flowers and recognition for the costume design for Judah and the Black Messiah that was released on HBO Max on February 12th. Now, if you haven't heard or seen this phenomenal film, Judah and the Black Messiah, First, do me a favor and do yourself a favor and go watch it. Second, if you haven't heard of the film, let me just tell you a little bit about it. It's based on a true story and it's about the ultimate, I didn't say that again, the ultimate portrayal of Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s at the hand of a man named William O'Neill who was a snitch, a.k.a. an FBI informant who was responsible for his death. And again, this is based on a true story. And it's a moving, beautifully shot piece of art. And I'm not just saying that because this film is already getting a whole bunch of accolades, including a Golden Globe that was already won for Best Supporting Actor for one of the lead roles. It has six nominations for the Academy Awards that happen in April. It has nominations for the Screen Actors Guild Award and the nominations for this year just keep going on and on and on and on and on because that's how fire the film is. And so I'm excited for this episode to highlight that film and to highlight Charlize who's worked on the film and talk about doing costume design for such a historical time in history and the challenges and the rewards of doing that. In this episode, we're going to talk about what is costume design and how does it differ from styling and exactly what goes into building a character's costume. We're going to talk about Charlize, how she fell in love with costume design at an early age and how she was, this is a quote from her, damn near annoying and loud about wanting to pursue costume design and how that helped her get to where she is today in the industry. We're going to talk about the significance of black costume designers and how they are 
recreating history and making sure that black and brown folks are a part of entertainment and reflected in stories accurately. We're going to discuss the challenges and rewards of Charlize being a part of this movie about the Black Panther Party and how important it was and what that process was. We're also going to learn black costume designers that we all know. Charlize is going to give us tips for how to get into the costume design game if that's what you're interested in. And of course, we're going to talk about the significance of costume design and how clothes characters wear in TV and film contributes to the stories that we see on the screen. Now, as usual, we structure every episode with the first 10 minutes of just me being solo dolo, dropping some facts and history, and then the last 30 or so minutes of the episode will be the conversation between me and Charlize that focuses on the current state and future of costume design and black costume designers. As always, let's kick off the history segment with a definition. What is costume design? Costume design is the creation of clothing for the overall appearance of an actor or performer. In other words, it's basically the character drip, threads, swag, whatever you want to call it. And costume designing is a part of theater, cinema, musical performance, all of those different mediums of entertainment. You feel me? And costume designers rent, pull, buy, and design, like literally create and sew, costumes for the cast and they start by working with directors producers writers and production hair and makeup to develop a look and the storytelling of this production they elevate the story pretty much they elevate the character in a way through clothes in a non-verbal way really through clothes that otherwise can't sometimes be be written and black costume designers and particularly black and brown costume designers and particularly preserve people of color history and people of color stories okay and so now we got the definition out the way now when i was doing research it got a little bit complicated <laughs> a lot of traditional history for costume design starts with greek and shakespearean theater so it was hella eurocentric Many of the stuff I found points costume design to village festivals and large festivals in ancient Athens, Greece, and ties it to these th theatrical <laughs> ties it to these theatrical performances of dramatic tragedies and comedies that happened in 487 BC, which means a long ass time ago, and so these texts just kind of go through like the Middle Ages in Europe and these dramatic reenactments of Bible studies and it goes into Shakespearean plays and blah, 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 blah. Not to dismiss it or say that it's not an accurate or important piece of history, but we're interested in the history of costume design from the black and brown perspective. I mean, I want to know, or I think it's safe to say that we want to know what people were doing in places like Africa, China, Brazil, Mexico, when it came to entertainment, theater, and costume design. And maybe I didn't dig deep enough. I did dig, though. But I really couldn't find much on early costume design history from a black or brown lens. Now, <clears throat> are we surprised? Nah, 
because we know that the people in charge and the people who colonize are usually writing history in the textbooks and they're going to fill it up with stuff about themselves. So for this historical element of the show, I thought it would be dope to honor and give flowers to black costume designers that clothed people from some of our favorite iconic shows. I wanted to celebrate these folks who are helping to recreate history, preserve the present, imagine the future, or bring forward elements of the truth that otherwise would be lost from just the script. So here are seven black costume designers that should be in our textbooks and once I get into it, you'll realize, oh, this person did design for that movie and that show. I love that show. At least I hope that's what your experience is going to be. So the first black costume designer that I would like to shout out is Ruth E. Carter. And she is a boss in the game. She has 20 years old under her belt. She's the first black person to win an Oscar for costume design and sis also has a hollywood star okay and she won that oscar for doing the costume design for black panther she also gained two academy award nominations for malcolm x that came out in 1992 and for amistad She's done costume design for some of our, our mamas, and our granddaddies' favorites, like Spike Lee joints, like School Days, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, as I mentioned before, and other classic black productions like What's Love Got to Do With It, Selma, and Being Mary Jane. So... Write Ruth Carter's name down, okay? Sis has been killing it. The second black costume designer that I would like to give flowers to is Paul Tezwell, T-A-Z-E-W-E-L-L. Paul is a stage designer that has created many of Broadway's most iconic moments, okay? Like the 2016 Tony Award winner for his work on Hamilton, And I don't know if y'all know this, quick fact, the writer, producer, director of Hamilton went to my undergrad, Wesleyan, whoop, whoop. (laughs) Paul also has credits for Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk, The Color Purple, Memphis, and many, many more. So that's Paul. A third black costume designer I want to give kudos to is Stacey Beverly, who is another woman in the costume design game with 20 years under her belt. She's worked on ABC's Blackest Season 1. She's also designed for some of our favorite shows, or maybe they're just my favorite shows, like girlfriends she also did the costume design for the game seasons one through three she also did costume design for will smith's all of us and ava duvernay's award award award-winning film middle of nowhere and she's also done some 
recent shows like X Factor and The Voice. So thank you, Stacey, because I love the clothes on Girlfriends. Not going to lie. Tracy Ellis Ross, Joan is her character, dressed like a bad bitch, and I love her clothes. I feel like some of it you could get away with wearing now. Some of it you couldn't because it was very 90s. All right. The fourth costume designer that should be in our textbooks is Sharon Davis, who's a twice-nominated Academy Award for Best Costume. First for the movie Ray, which was amazing. Jamie Foxx killed it. The costumes in there were impeccable okay and then she also got her second nomination for an academy award for dream girls and man another iconic movie with the costumes on point her credits also include antoine fisher the great debaters the help and django unchained okay sharon i see you changing the costume game the fifth Black costume designer that should be in our textbooks is Yolanda Braddy, B-R-A-D-D-Y. I hope I'm saying that right. I hate saying people's names wrong, you know. She is the costume designer for some of our favorite 90s TV shows like Mo to the, Eat to the, Moesha. She also did Space Jam. Space Jam, it's your chance to yo dance. Okay, I'm going to stop singing. And she's also responsible for the Parkers. Yeah, I recreated a Moesha look for Halloween. If you don't follow me on Instagram, Tori from Harlem, look at my Halloween photo. I did Moesha. And Moesha also got rebooted during the quarantine onto Netflix. So I know a lot of people been watched it. I couldn't do it. It was hard to watch um, as an older person, but that's a story for a different day. The sixth black costume designer that should be in our textbooks is Danielle Holowell. H-O-L-L-O-W-E-L-L. She's a native of Detroit. She worked on some of the most poppin' pop culture iconic films including BAPS How Stella Got Her Groove Back my mom loves that movie Girls Trip and The Best Man Danielle thank you because those are my movies right there okay (laughs) BAPS the hair the nails the gold teeth great costume design the seventh black costume design that should be in our textbooks is Cecile. Everywhere I looked her up, she have no last name because she's a boss, I'm assuming. So it's Cecile, I believe, C-E-C-I. And she is a costume designer for some of my favorite shows. And I know I keep saying that for every person, so that's why I love them. But she's done looks for a different world, you know, the flip glasses for the main character. I can't think, I think it was Dwayne. Yes, his flip glasses. Thank you, Cecile. Um, She also did a living single, Sister, Sister, Dear White People, and most recently, Mixed Dish. And the eighth black costume designer, I know I said seven, but I'm going to put in the eighth, is of course today's guest, Charlize, who's been designing for over 10 years. And like I said earlier, she's done Netflix Raising Dion. She's done Netflix Astronomy Show. She currently is getting her flowers in recognition for the great work that she did for Judah and the Black Messiah. And 
yeah, those are some of the black eight of the black costume designers that have shaped some of our favorite movies, shows, series, whatever you want to call them. They really have shaped black culture and black TV. And that is so amazing. And so that's the history element of the episode. So now we're going to jump into the interview with Charlize, where we talk about what is costume design, the future of costume design, the challenges and the rewards of doing a costume design for a movie about the Black Panther Party, who's so important to Black culture, to American culture, to activism and civil rights. So let's get into it. Hi, Charlize. (laughs) Well, I'm excited just to have you on the show because you've been doing costume design for a long, long time. Um, And you recently did the costume design for Black Messiah, which is a great film that you should all have checked out on HBO Max right now. I wanted to start out by having you introduce yourself, tell everyone how dope you are and all the projects that you've done. Um, Obviously, the Black Messiah and all the other ones. You've done some Netflix shows. And so you know, just let people know who you are. Cool. Uh, My name is Charlize Antoinette. I am a costume designer. I recently, uh, my most recent work is Judas and the Black Messiah, which is on HBO Max till March 14th and in select theaters around the country. I also was a costume designer of Raising Beyond season one, Astronomy Club season one, um, as well as The Inevitable Defeated Mr. and Pete, and Newlyweeds and a couple other films that you can check out on Netflix. Um, you know, I'm on IMDb. It's really easy to find me and my work. My website is my name, charliesantonet.com. So, um, but Judas and the Black Messiah is my 10th feature film, which is really exciting. Congrats. Because um, people think it's my first. <laughs> so I always have to say that. It's like, yes, it's my first studio film, but it's my 10th feature since I started designing in 2012. Wow, that's great. So one of the signature questions of the show that we always start out with is like a definition. So could you give us a definition of costume design? Yeah, absolutely. So what costume designers do is we help the actors to shape their characters through the clothing that they wear. And costume designers can do this in a number of ways. Um, You know, either we build the clothes, which, which means we design and they get made either by the costume designer themselves or a tailor. Um, you know, or, t- or a team of tailors, you know, in the, in the case of like a huge show. Um, costume designers can also do a combination of both where they um, purchase contemporary or purchase period pieces or rent contemporary or rent period pieces and build pieces as well. So there's a couple different methods, but like the main thing then to note is that when you're a costume designer or costume designing, you are building a character through clothing. Great. I love how you phrase that, building a character through clothing. I think a lot of people get costume design and maybe styling confused. I, I, I think they also may be similar in different aspects. Could you explain the difference of the two? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's definitely some overlap with costume design and styling as far as like methodology, like they're definitely partners and um, and, you know, siblings, you know, mm-hmm. but as far as um, styling goes, specifically, when I think of styling, I think about like um, media solutions. So, you know, a lot of times when you're styling something, it's to sell a product or a person mm-hmm. or to, um, you know, in the case of like a press run, right, to like 
help the person, you know, um, represent themselves, you know, for the general public. So it's more of a marketing tool styling. It's not always about building character. But, you know, like I said, again, a lot of times there's some overlap because even with styling, you might be building clothing and doing some designing. And, you know, like if you're if you're um, doing someone's tour, right, and you're designing costumes for their tour, that is costume designing, but it's still kind of under that same umbrella of styling as far as it being a media solution. It's it's for marketing purposes. It's not to build a character or create a character on a on a film or on a television show. So it's yeah. a little different. Yeah, that was a really clear definition. I love that um, distinction because I wasn't able to kind of figure that out. <laughs> Another signature question of this show before we get into the nitty gritty stuff of your process and everything is, did you learn about um, costume design and stuff like that in your textbook? Because, you know, this is not in your textbook podcast. <laughs> no, I did not learn about um, costume design or styling in my textbook. I did not go to school for this. I don't have any formal education in costume design or styling, but over the years, I got education in, through a couple of um, mediums. So when I was in college, I was studying fashion, merchandising, and marketing. And at the same time that I was going to school, the Style Network launched. And so at night, they would have various different shows where they would have stylists on and interview them. And I remember um, Robert Verdi was like the, one of the main people they would interview a lot. And they had his title up on the screen as a stylist. And I was like, huh, like, what's that? And it's like, oh, he was like dressing Holly Berry. She was like one of his clients at the time. Like, of his big clients biggest clients during that time and she was huge right mm-hmm. we're talking like the early 2000s yes Halle Berry everyone's in the Halle Berry cut too <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah like she was huge and so um that's how I learned like what a stylist does and who a stylist is so no I did not learn it in my textbook I actually learned it through television <laughs> wow so when did you first dis- discover or realize that you wanted to do costume design like where did that all begin where did that love start so I've always loved films. I mean, I grew up in a in a home where like, you know, the one thing we could watch was like movies together. My, fa- my family was very strict and like very religious. Mm-hmm. And so um, I grew up watching like a lot of actual biblical films um, mm-hmm. and a lot of, a lot of Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille films. So like um, epic films like Cleopatra, um, Ben-Hur was a movie I watched on repeat. And I realized that I was watching them on repeat because of the costumes a lot of times because they were so interesting and and just like especially in Cleopatra they're just like insane costumes Mm -hmm. um and and we're talking like Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra so just like over the top yeah um and and so that's when I I realized like oh I was watching this because I like the clothes but I still didn't understand that that was like a job and that was like an attainable job it just seems so like far off right and then I think fast forward to like the early 90s um, I remember watching like Malcolm X and getting familiar with Ruth Carter's work and the journey that she took Denzel Washington on um, through clothing. Yeah, that was a powerful from, movie. Yeah. So like as he transforms from, you know, um, Detroit Red to, you know, to Malcolm X, there's like a journey he goes through through clothing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I actually wrote about this complex context. I mean, I wrote about this in complex because I just felt like that was the first time I realized like you know, how a character goes through a journey via their clothing. And two, that um, a young black woman was doing this job and thus it was like attainable for me. Mm-hmm. And, but even still with that, I didn't know how. So yeah. when I moved to New York after college, I realized there's a bunch of stuff filming and I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of 
things filming and I saw trucks that had wardrobe on them, right? <laughs> or costumes, like depending on who who uh, who issues the truck, it'll yeah. either say wardrobe or costumes. Like mm-hmm. there's different truck companies. That's, we won't get into that. So anyway, <laughs> um, I was like, well, how do I get on one of these trucks? And how do I get on one of these jobs? You know? So I just started like asking mad questions. At the time I um, had left the fashion industry and I was um, freelancing. So I was doing a lot of freelancing and um, I was freelancing working fashion week. And that's how I ended up getting a job um, was through just networking and someone asking me like what I was doing and what I wanted to do and someone overhearing it and offering me an internship. Mm, literally that's how it happened. That's amazing. So I, yeah, that's literally how it happened. So it's like, you know, you can't, you have to be vocal about what you want and like, you know, sometimes be damn near annoying about it <laughs> um, um and and I'm, I'm pretty sure I was because I was just like blah, 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 blah. I want to do you know and um because I figured hey the more I talk about it someone's bound to hear it and know how to do it right yeah and and so and it worked so I got an internship on a film it was a Michael Douglas film um Ellen Mirajnik who just we know now a lot of us know now but uh, a lot of us knew her for doing mm-hmm. Basic Instinct and Wall Street and all kinds of amazing movie. But she did Bridgerton, which is like super popular. She's a costume yes. designer for Bridgerton. Wow. So that was one of the first costume designers I worked with, along with Jenny Gehring, who is pretty well known for Americans and the later seasons of The Deuce. Um, and so that's how I got my start. I worked for them for free for two weeks. And then I ended up working with David Robinson, who's well known for Donnie Brasco and Zoolander. Um, and he taught me a lot, just driving him around and observing how he worked and, you know, and him taking me shopping with him and showing me resources. And he was just like really, really cool. And um, on that job, I also met Meredith Markworth Pollock, who ended up helping me a lot in my career. And we're still dear friends to this day. Um, and I was, you know, I was assisting her as she was transitioning to doing costume design um, as as the head of the department and not assisting anymore. So. That's kind of how I got my start and how I got into it. And then from there, I just kind of like kept working and worked my way up and worked as many positions as I could in the costume department so I could be a well-rounded um, designer and know what every aspect of the department does. And I'm able to set like realistic timelines. I'm, I know people's jobs. I know when you're bullshitting me and I know when you need more time. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, boss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that you said that, you know, you could, you should be almost annoying about the things that you want, because I think a lot of times, you know, especially for, you know, people of color, women, you know, we're a little more quiet or we're told to be quiet, more reserved. But I think like, you do have to put that out there, like, you know, in terms of manifesting, even just saying it to people, even, you know, believing it, saying it, Mm -hmm. and you never know who's in the room. And like, that's great and very encouraging and inspiring to me that, you know, you just kept on talking about it and mentioning it in rooms and people are open and willing to help you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't understand that there are a lot of people who want to help, who want to mentor or looking to, you know, help someone else climb up. So I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's more people who want to help than who don't. And, um, you know, especially in my journey, um, just even over the last year, even though it was a pandemic, there was just so much support that showed up and real support, not like fake support and fake allies, like real support showed up in a way that I was not prepared for. And it's totally like giving me more hope and faith just like in humanity and also <laughs> just in my in my colleagues. Because, yeah. um, you know, for a long time, I don't, I didn't feel like my colleagues were being supportive of, 
each other and of me and I'm starting to see that change and I think a lot of it has to do with the pandemic and just like some things that all of us are realizing you know yeah I think so too I feel like I get a lot of support you know even just you being on the podcast I feel like I reach out to people that I know and I'm like I don't know if they're gonna want to do this and they're like yeah of course and I'm like oh why did I think they weren't gonna do it so I'm yeah people are really supportive and I think now that everything is virtual they're a little bit more flexible in terms of fitting it in their schedule they don't have to like physically go somewhere so it makes it a little bit easier as well no, um, it helps. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. <laughs> How did that opportunity come to you? Yeah, so um, Judas and the Black Messiah, I think about a year before I got greenlit, the director spoke to me about it. He and I are friends and we've worked together for about a decade on and off. Um, and so he told me that he was writing the script and he was pitching it. And um it just happened to be serendipitous. I had done a bunch of research about the Panthers and about the 60s for an episode of a TV show that I was assisting designing. And so I had all this research. I had gone to the costume library in um, in Western, which is in LA, mm. and scanned a bunch of catalogs and a bunch of magazines and Black Panther books and stuff like that. So I had a bunch of research already. And I was like, wow, that's, that's dope. Like, I think I'm ready for this. Like, and I don't even know when this is gonna get greenlit. <laughs> Um, about a year later, um, he started coming to LA and he was like, we're, it's about to go. Like, it's really about to go. And I was like, great. So, um, and I had been doing more research over that, that time period, uh, about Chairman Fred specifically and about the Illinois party specifically. And I was blown away by what I learned because I just didn't realize there was like, um, these really specific distinctions between what the Illinois chapter was doing and the Oakland headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into that later. Yeah. But yeah, like my research was just really amazing, just learning all of this stuff about Chairman Fred and his ideology. And like, it definitely uh, affected me in a real way, just listening to his speeches and watching the documentaries and seeing the work that they were doing during that time. So when the movie got greenlit, I had to go through like two interviews and they were about to put me through a third round. But um, I had to <laughs> interview with Macro and then I had to interview with Proximity. And, um, and right before I was about to have the interview with Warner Brothers, specifically, um, they, they, they just said yes. Then they were like, this is who the director wants, hire her. Nice. Um, yeah, so that, but I had to go through a couple of rounds of interviews, you know, it was like, it was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I had worked with Macro several times and I still had to go through an interview process and come in and like, pitch to them my ideas and prove myself so you know just because like you've worked with someone or worked with a um a production company or a team like multiple times over it doesn't mean you don't still have to like compete with other people and pitch your ideas right so like Mm -hmm. people you know you can't get too comfortable you know (laughs) yeah yeah that sounds great that sounds intense you almost went through a third interview um, and pitching ideas it wasn't just like answering questions you know (laughs) no I had a presentation um they hooked my laptop up to a screen you know it was like a whole presentation wow Um, yeah yeah. That sounds dope though. You already mentioned this in your last response, gave us a little preview, but what are some things that you learned in your process of doing costume design? And then I want to know about your costume design process. Um, like specifically for this film? Yes. Yeah. Um, so some things that I learned was that um, the Illinois chapter party wore a lot of these World War II um, camel jackets. 
Mm. And um, and that was very surprising because, you know, most of the imagery we see when we see Black Panthers are of them in leather and berets and these powder blue shirts, right? Mm-hmm. We see, like most of the footage we see is just of the Oakland demonstration um, <clears throat> where they're wearing this uniform, right? And it was just interesting to note that the Illinois party kind of had their own vibe. Mm. And um, the reasons for it, you know, when I asked Fred Jr. about it, he said that it was... Um, signifying the fact that there was a war going on here, you know, between U.S. government and Black people. It was also an active protest of the draft in the Vietnam War. Um, He said, like, some people would even come back from the Vietnam War and join the Panthers and just take the U.S. Army patch off of their jacket. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, and I was, I, I thought that was beautiful I mean there was also um in the imagery of the Panthers they had like these really cool um armbands on their jackets with the panther on it but we opted to we opted to not do some of like the 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 symbology that they actually wore so there's like some pins and things that um Chairman Fred wore on like his camel hat for example and we opted out out of like using some of that stuff because we just um you know it just felt a little too um, personal and like too specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so we just opted to just kind of like give a general overview of what the feeling of the party was and not get too caught up into too many of the symbols and, and things like that because things need to be cleared, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and also I think um, it's just okay to like let the party have like their own things that don't need to be public in my yeah. personal opinion like that's yeah like that you know some of the symbols don't need to be of public knowledge because that's how they organize their ranks and you know um and all that so um so that was really interesting to learn and then um you know a lot of the imagery of chairman fred he he didn't always wear a beret mm-hmm. i found this really cool um piece of uh documentary or documentary footage where he's making this amazing um these amazing points about the the need for education and how like, you know, you just can't flood money into the community and like people aren't educated because then, you know, you have a situation where um, people, well, he basically was like, if we have this center and we have this bank in the community and we don't have education, then they don't understand like what we're doing and why we're doing it. And like, you know, without education, like people just rob you basically because they don't know how to like, take it a step further you know they don't know how to invest the money or you know or understand like just the collectivism because he was more about educating them about like the collectivism and like um educating them about what imperialism is and why they're anti-imperialist and you know and as you know you have to go through like these rigorous education courses to even join the party right so he was very big on education but anyway in watching that footage I saw this camel hat and I was like this is amazing and this camel hat (laughs) um duck camo and it's very 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 synonymous with like vape as a lot of people know it so Mm -hmm. on Twitter last week there was a whole moment where like people were like going crazy about the hat like where's the hat from where's the hat from and I'm like it's a it's real it's a vintage hat but I really think they thought it was like vape or something oh no (laughs) yeah no it's like all these streetwear kids who were like this hat this hat this hat and so (laughs) When I researched him and saw him wearing this hat, I thought it was so cool because I was like, 
he's just so chill. Like his style was very like intentional and it was like about utility, but it was also so chill. Cause even the way he wears the hat, it's just kind of like to the side. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he, he's not like Bobby Rush who was like mod and like dressed to the nines, you know? Yeah. And he was just very like put together in that kind of way. Um, Chairman Fred was just very chill. His style was, and he was a former athlete too. Learning that also informed how I dressed him. Nice. You know, he wears like a lot of crew neck sweatshirts and like mock necks. And he was a college student. Like he had just got out of college. And so, you know, even a lot of what he wears, like the cardigans and things like that are what college guys wear during that time. So, you know, just like piecing all that together based off of like the knowledge I have about him and the images that we have um, was also really cool because I wasn't really 100% sure how to approach his character at first because I was like, style-wise, I didn't feel like there was a ton out there. But as I started studying photos of him and putting together a timeline, like literally putting together a timeline where I, me and my... Um, PA slash researcher were like putting things on the floor like this is what he wore early in 69 and this is what he wore late in 69 <laughs> you know and like yeah. just kind of figured it out based off his facial hair and how his facial hair was growing and changing and doing and even his hair you know um yeah. like this feels like late 60s you know later in 69 because we established that he was going to wear a leather jacket later because there's not a ton of him wearing leather jackets but the images we have of him wearing leather jackets seem closer to the end of 69. Mm. Um, and I'm probably like rambling. And um, we've already kind of started talking about your process of like the timeline. Yeah. So you want to go into more of like your process. You had to style so many historic um, and important black people. So I know that that was like a lot, but you did a great job. I enjoyed Thank it. You. So could you tell us, I guess, vaguely, what was your process for approaching you know, different characters? So how did you approach these different um characters so specifically because um like a lot of our male characters were based on real people um so i started with the images of those actual people and um and with the director you know i have discussions and um and also with like my knowledge of like 60s trends and stuff like that too mm -hmm. and 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 character notes that he would give me we would make decisions so like i said bobby rush felt more mod when you look at images of him, his vibe feels more mod. It would make sense. He's a little bit older than everyone. So he kind of has been dressing the same since like, you know, the early to mid 60s. So he's he's the mod guy. And so when you <laughs> always see him, he's very layered. He's mod. He's got on like the turtleneck the with the yep. down over it and the leather jacket. Or he's got the nice like fisherman sweater on, you know, like he's like very, very, very mod. And so from, from there, like once um, I made a decision about what the person's particular style was based off of like the 60s trends. Um, it was about like expanding from there and thinking about what kinds of pieces they would have in their closet and rotating those pieces. So if you notice, it feels, the movie feels real because I rotate their clothing like yeah. a real person would wear it. Yeah, they so repeat like, outfits. <laughs> they repeat, and not even just outfits, like pieces of the outfit. So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, this button down might go with this V-neck sweater one day, but on another day, you know, it, it goes with a zip front jacket, you know? So like doing things like that, like with um, with Algie's character, um, who's also based on a real person, Jake Winters, who was um, also killed by the police. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he the, the, the conversation the director and I had was about making him feel really young and like really nerdy. So like when the thing happens to him in the third act, it comes, it kind of comes out of nowhere and you're like, wait, what? 
you know, and it's just about how people get radicalized, right? Mm-hmm. People you would never expect get radicalized, just like visually being able to like draw that point home. Um, because like with Palmer, Palmer, he, which is Ashton Sanders, he's supposed to be like the coolest Panther you've ever seen, right? And he's like <laughs> radical and he knows his shit and he's like the coolest Panther you've ever seen. He's the Panther that you aspire to be. So with his vibe, it was about making him feel a little bit ahead trend wise. So his, his looks lean a little bit more towards the 70s, which we were seeing men doing in the late 60s, you know, because there's always trendsetters, right? Yeah. So like we were seeing a lot of men wearing like these spread pointed collared shirts and, you know, these amazing bell bottom pants with stripes and things like that. And um, and then as far as um, Lakeith's character of O'Neal, he starts to copy Ashton because he's like, oh, if he's the, he's like the one, the radical one, the like, most knowledgeable one the coolest one the coolest one like he's like the coolest panther ever he starts emulating that but like taking it to like almost cartoonish levels you know Mm. um and being like really flashy more more of like a hustler you know than like a cool like down like real dude right yeah um so you see lakeith's character evolution as um o'neill where he starts out as a poor street kid you know like when he starts out, you you see him in the dingy Jack Purcells and like beat up Levi's jeans and, you know, and a lot of layers because he doesn't have a real coat. And then when he, gets, <laughs> yeah. up, he gets a real leather jacket and he's playing Panther for the rest of the movie. And when yeah. he gets the car, he gets a leather jacket. He's playing Panther for the rest of the movie. And when he's not in the leather, he's like knocking off Palmer's looks, but like to the next level because he's mm-hmm. like really, really bright and crazy with it. Um, <laughs> And um, so the women, um, as far as uh, Deborah Johnson, who is now called Mama Lakua, who was Fred's um, partner at the time, she, we didn't have a ton of photos to go off of. So um, there was just some decisions on her wardrobe made based on character, just to make her in the beginning feel really sweet and warm Mm -hmm. and um, also young. Like, so we wanted to drive home that so many of these people were young yeah so so like the way to do that was through clothing as well so you know you'll see her wearing like what a lot of young college girls were wearing during that time which is a lot of jumpers you know Mm -hmm. jumpers and turtlenecks and knee-high socks and knee-high lace-up boots and you know things like that like really playing with that especially in the beginning and then as we go along in the film we feel a tonal shift she's pregnant um chairman fred got out of jail and he's talking about dying for the revolution so i I don't know if people notice but after that from that um people's church scene on everything gets a little darker you know like tonally everything gets a little bit darker um we you know for those of us who know about his story we know we're reaching the end right yeah and so visually and tonally it starts feeling like that as well um and so with um with deborah who's played by dominique same thing with her clothing. Her clothing gets a lot darker. And so um, literally for some of the looks that she wears like in the house and things like that, but she's wearing like a layered turtleneck and like um, those beautiful dashiki tops um, was was from research of real women, you know, in the party, just like, you know, in casual settings or even at the, at the office, you know, wearing black turtlenecks layering them like that I'm going to post a lot of the images that I have of women in the party and what they were wearing because um it's just I think it's just important to note style wise what they were doing it was very chic Mm -hmm. very chic um lots of black turtlenecks lots of like beautiful silver um like chokers with like nice hanging um hanging um uh charms and like and like the 60s charms that look handmade so like we ended up 
finding a beautiful one did a lot of like finding contemporary things that felt 60s because you know these trends come around come and back around and around. yeah exactly um so we it was just very well curated in that way where I would say like probably 90% of the clothing is actually true to the period mm -hmm. um, because we source so much. And, and oh, also identified early on um, key moments where we needed to reproduce things exactly. exactly. For, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately I didn't have a ton of prep time and I had such a large cast that I couldn't um, reproduce every piece of clothing the way I might've wanted to. Um, and you know, I didn't have enough manpower either. So it was about identifying what those key moments are and what those key costumes were. For the robe that um, that uh, Deborah is wearing when Chairman gets shot, which is based on the actual robe that the real Deborah Mama Kula was arrested in. And you can look up the footage. Um, we had to design, recreate that fabric, print the fabric, build the robe. Um, the suit that Lakeith wears as O'Neill for the Eyes on the Prize interview, same thing, we had to design that suit, source the fabric, build the suit. Um, we actually recreated the boxers that Chairman Fred wears when he's killed. Um, and Daniel is wearing them in that scene, but you never see them. But just so he feels like him, yeah. um, you know, he had he had them on. Okay. So he was dressed in the same look um, that um, Chairman Fred was, was murdered in so it was based on the crime scene photos you can look them up they're like these printed boxers and so we had to um design and print and recreate the fabric and build those boxers as well and base the boxers off of um boxers that we had or found that were from that time period because you know we were from there we were able to infer what the cut of the boxer would be you know mm -hmm. and make a pattern of it so it was pretty detailed. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds detailed. And even though there were things that we could not see, like his boxers, I'm sure as the actor, it helped him like, you know, get into character and really feel that moment. Cause that's one of the most powerful, I think, parts of the movie and most anticipated. Cause if you are familiar with the story, you know how it's going to end. So you're kind of just anticipating, um, that part. So I, I think those details, even the ones we didn't see, probably played a really big role for even just the actors and actresses in the film. So that's great. Yeah. Do you have a favorite character um, that you like to style during this movie? I mean, I, I honestly love every single costume in this movie that ended up on anybody. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's not always the case. I'm yeah. really hard on myself, but it's just a testament to the fact that I had a really good team and um, and I researched the fuck out of this material and I was very clear <laughs> yes. about what, what this world needed to look like. And I had a really good team to help me execute it. And so I'm just really grateful for that because, um, you know, like Lakeith, I got to go on a really fun character journey with him. And because the director and I know each other really well and he trusts me and, I was able to like really push it, like really push the envelope with like some of the textures and the colors and the, the looks that I put on the keep that might feel really ridiculous or out of place at times, but it just kind of works because you're kind of like, this guy doesn't know who he is and he's mm -hmm. like a fraud, right? So mm -hmm. he looks fraudulent pretty much all the time. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it really works. And I've had some amazing conversations with people where they really got it. Like they really yeah. understood his character and the, how the wardrobe helped them to understand the character and even drive where we are in the story. You know, you can kind of track where we are in the story based off of what Lakeith's wearing. You're like, oh, he's a paid informant now because his look 
looks more like this. Yeah. Making money. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's, um, so that was really fun for me and like, you know, playing. So yeah, I definitely think O'Neill is my, one of my favorite characters and because it's women's history month, I'm about to break down more of the female characters. This yes. week cause it's a very male dominated film. Yeah. And, um, I think every day I'm going to focus on a different female character and also, um, research of, of women in the party, like real images of women at the party that I based the, their characters on. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm excited. I've been following you on Instagram. If you're listening, you should follow her on Instagram. <laughs> she does a lot of, she shows the background stuff and she just highlighted just now that she's going to do women of the party, you know, during March and in particularly the women characters that she highlight that were in the Black Messiah movie. So you should definitely follow her because it's really interesting. And I think that like, even for me, I don't think I really realized, you know, how important clothing is to a character's development, to the phases in their lives. And I felt like that was really apparent in this movie. And I felt like it ha helped me have like an even greater appreciation for like clothes. Cause we all, I think, you know, it's easy to think about clothes about like how you dress as an individual and your mood, but imagine the evolution of like a person and who they are. And I felt like that was really apparent in the movie. So I really, really enjoyed just watching them. And I think it also, you know, you did a lot to really remind us that they're young. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of people, you know, including the Black Panther Party, Martin Luther King, like these people were very young activists. And um, I think, you know, of course the media and the cops, they don't want to highlight that part, you know, but the movie did a great job of showing that they're just like these really smart young adults who are sick and tired, you know? And they're and they're smart um, and they're powerful and they understand like how to talk to one another and come together because even Fred Hampton was going to different, you know, the gangs, he was going to different mm -hmm. supremacist groups and being like, we can band together. And I thought that that was really powerful to see because, um, you know, I think the news and the FBI tried to make you know, the party to be this terrorist group, but they were actually bringing people together, which was what was scaring them the most. <laughs> and so that's what I really appreciated. Yeah. And like, I think it's also important to know just, you know, as, as far as like context and mm -hmm. facts go, there, it was not a prerequisite that you were a black person to join the Black Panther Party. Mm. Like that was not a, that was not necessarily a prerequisite. So there's like this, this, um, this image or this opinion of the party that they were like anti-white, right? Yeah. Or just anti anyone except black people. And that's yeah. not true. Mm -hmm. There were people of different races who were a part of the party. It, it was just like, if you do the education, you know, um, and then also if you really do subscribe to this ideology, you could join the party. And, um, and I think it's just really important to know. And also, all the different groups that sprung up because of the party, mm -hmm. you know? So like the Young Lords were partially inspired by the party and the Young Lords were a gang. They were a street gang and they turned into a revolutionary organization. Um, there was also an Asian group that was inspired by the party. And I always forget the name of this group. I think it's the Red, oh my God, you're gonna have to look it up for me and I like, will. <laughs> put it in captions on the screen or something. <laughs> Um, I, I, I feel bad because I keep reading the name of this organization, but they were inspired by the party and they sprung up in the Bay um, as well. And they were, an, if I'm not mistaken, specifically a Chinese group, mm -hmm. um, Chinese revolutionary group um, inspired by the Black Panther Party. And, um, and the Black Panther Party was inspired by Chairman Mao. 
communism. So mm -hmm. like, how how is this organization anti anything when its influences are so like wide ranging? You know, mm -hmm. they're they're listening to and reading Chairman Mao's words, who's Chinese. You yeah. know, <laughs> so like um, the media has really done a, a a disservice to us all, and and we know why. It's yeah. because um, they don't want us to know the truth and know how we're all seriously getting played. Yeah. Um, by capitalism and neo-imperialism and blah 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 we can go on for days but um you know and just being an adult and learning these things and re-educating myself has just been so amazing and then being able to re-educate myself again by working on this project has just been like really really amazing and it's completely changed my worldview and changed me as a, a person honestly yeah can you talk about some of those changes and some of the things emotions that were attached to being a part of such a historic movie absolutely i mean um, you know, I've talked about this a little bit, but I really believe after working on this project, I experienced like a major like ego death and I'm realizing that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, like working on this project changed me. It made me become more of an activist than I ever have. I mean, I've always had like a really good heart and always been helping people and yes. was always a champion of um, of diversity and black um, representation for black people in this industry and in my career field specifically. And, and not just black people, like anyone who um, is underrepresented. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I've always been down and been a champion of like helping you get, get into this industry. But um, after learning what the Panthers were doing with like no money, <laughs> I was able to kind of rethink a lot of things that I was doing. Cause I was like thinking about things in like a, like more of a capitalistic kind of sense, right? Where I was like, I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna make all this money. I'm gonna be a millionaire and then I'm gonna get back, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not, and, and this is where also like the ego death thing comes in too, because I was basing even just like my worth off of my career and like accomplishing things, right? And and then I do this movie, I learn all the things that I learned. And through doing this movie, I actually was able to make a difference and give back to Cleveland. I started a sewing program there called Design You. But even when we wrapped the film, I honestly was like deeply depressed because, and this was before like George Floyd happened and Ahmaud Arbery and- um, Breonna Taylor. And Breonna Taylor and like all the stuff that started happening, right? During the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic because I had realized that not much had changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, like the things that he was saying that the Panthers are fighting for are still affecting black people, still affecting marginalized people, poor people, disenfranchised people around the world. And I didn't know what to do with that. Like I, I, I got really, really, really depressed and I didn't know what to do with that. And I can honestly say what pulled me out of the depression was love and particularly like children, you know, mm -hmm. like my love for children and like the children in my family. I remember we wrapped right before Christmas and um, and I'm probably getting like way too personal right now, but we wrapped right before Christmas. And I remember being um, with my family and we were on a, at a vacation home and I just couldn't get out of bed. I was just like, what's the point? Like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's literally how I felt when we finished this movie. I was like, what's the point? Like, 
this shit isn't changing. It's the same. And, yeah. you know, because like I literally re we relived, we relived it. Like it felt like I literally relived this time. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I relived his murder and I relived the, you know, the betrayal. Like we all felt that, you know, a lot of us have talked after the movie wrapped about these kinds of things. And the kids in my family, my nieces, my nephews, my baby cousins, like they all came and got me out of bed. You know, and it because it was Christmas. Yeah. And they're like, it's Christmas. Auntie, it's Christmas, big cuzzy. Let's go. And I was like, oh, love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that at the end of the film, I was crying. Like I didn't expect mm -hmm. to have that type of reaction. Like the credits are done and I am in my bed crying. And I think it was because I felt some of those feelings that you described. Like I was just like, damn, like. I can't, I mean, I can believe that they did this. I knew that this was going to happen towards the end of the film, but it felt so real and it feels like we're still there. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like in terms of the progress that you were talking about, like George Floyd, Beyonce Taylor, like we're still telling people that we can't breathe. We still have to say that Black Lives Matter. And so I felt so like upset, you know, that I felt like we were still here, you know, I think love, like you said, you know, and just mm -hmm. doing stuff like this podcast and talking to people mm -hmm. like you and seeing people that I know doing dope work and powerful work is inspiring to me and helps mm -hmm. me keep going. But that was kind of like, I think that was the, emo I was like really shocked. Like I like don't cry. And I was like, at movies and I was like, and I was like, oh, this is deeper than, than this. You know what I'm saying? It's not just about this. Like, this is like, it just felt so like it's a betrayal it, yeah. it feels like a, the ultimate betrayal because it's like all this man was trying to do was like move through this world in love mm -hmm. that's what he was doing he talks about his love for the people he's high off the people feeding children trying yeah. to like you know start open medical clinics and like and unity like, that too, was like stolen and unity. unity yeah unity and it's like and y'all did y'all stole that y'all stole that and we're still here like you know so mm -hmm. it was just I understand. I understand. But the movie is yeah. good. Everyone, you should watch it. <laughs> yeah, no, the movie is great. I mean, yeah. I, I think like, honestly, once I worked through all of those emotions, it was about identifying and realizing what the small ways and the small things that I could do that end up adding up to big things. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, I had to like go through all of these like phases and levels emotionally to get to this point where it's like, it's about love. And it's about all the small things that you do that add up, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've and I've and I've had this like um, be shown to me multiple times, you know, um, where people conversations I've had with people recently, where they're like, "Hey, there was this one time we had a conversation, and you said this thing, and it totally changed the trajectory of my life." And I'm like, yeah. "What are you talking about?" I don't, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, I've I've had like these confirmations from the universe that keep me going and yeah. keep me doing these and the story, you know? So, and it's like, I don't want to leave this podcast on like a sad note and be no. like, oh, we have, we have like a couple like more questions. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to talk everyone through like my process and be real about how it yes. affected me. But like, I got to this really amazing place mm -hmm. because of it, you know? Um, and doing like some amazing activism and work, you know, in, in my industry as well, like trying to hold us accountable for using black designers even. Yeah. you know and like you know so 
yeah, there's a there's a bunch of really amazing things that came out of it, even though like it did knock me back for a little bit. The the emotional weight of it. it did. Yeah. And I just yeah. want to um, add to that, too, because like I cried and it was an emotional thing, but it also just kind of helped me revisit like, okay, how am I as an individual person, you know, um, continuing on this ideology of this party? Like, yes, this party is quote unquote dead, but it lives within me. It lives within you. It lives within anybody. And it's not just black people, like you mentioned, right? Like anybody can be a black Panther if you believe in their ideologies. And so I just kind of, it helped me check myself and be like, okay, we're emotional. We can feel hopeless, but what, you know, like, okay, you are doing things that are uplifting you and uplifting other people and you are continuing on this legacy and it's important to con continue on this legacy. And that's what I got from like, you know, the movie. It's like, you know, it's about unity. It's about love and continuing on, you know, however mm -hmm. you may see that is like, if you're, if I'm a historian, okay, I do my history podcast, you're a designer, you do a sewing program. So it's like, there's so many ways that you can continue on this legacy and the movie just kind of reminds you of that you know Absolutely. Um, it doesn't it doesn't die with Fred you know so um what was some of the most challenging and rewarding parts of being a part of such a historic movie telling an incredible story um I think the most challenging and rewarding was the fact that it was based on real people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and some of them were on set and um you know oh, yeah. so you had to be humble and like listen you know and um and also know when to say you know you're infringing upon my creative process <laughs> so, <laughs> that's you know, hard <laughs> yeah so you know i definitely learned even more diplomacy i feel like i'm a pretty diplomatic person when it comes to doing this doing my job but um definitely learned even more diplomacy and um made some great friendships and relationships you know because of it um you know i can call chairman fred jr right now and talk shit and that's beautiful you know and he's and he's he's lovely um so you know like but yeah that was definitely a really challenging part and also like the pressure you know because there's a lot of people who want this story told and there was so much speculation even before the trailer came out about oh it ain't gonna be right and it's not gonna so there was a lot of pressure and so on my end i was like i just have to make sure that the costumes feel real Mm -hmm. and it and it's and it's not distracting right it's yeah. not like so so pristine or or like stereotypical or like cartoonish or like I just had to make sure I put like real effort into making things look real and authentic so it wasn't distracting it was aiding the story it was supporting people's character development um so and that was that was hard because it was like before so, you know, it was very challenging, but very all of it was very rewarding. I'm I'm really grateful. Like with even as we were going through it, I wasn't I never was like, oh, I don't want to go to work today. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I never felt like that. And I felt like that on projects. It was like, oh, I don't I don't want to go to work today. Never one day, like the best cast, the best crew, like my team was the best. Like it was, it was amazing and rewarding. It was a hard work. It was so hard. I worked so many hours <laughs> i can <laughs> I imagine weekend. i can only I imagine there every weekend i worked yeah. almost every weekend to make that shit happen yeah wow, that's great getting back to some styling history who are some costume designers that you admire that we should probably know about and should be in our textbooks sure absolutely i mean um i think i brought up ruth carter already which she's like prolific and iconic um, Michael Wilkinson is another one. He's um, an amazing costume designer. 
Um, he's done a lot of sci-fi. Um, who else? I mean, there's just so many. I have so many like amazing colleagues. I don't even know where to start, but I would say, um, oh, Aiko Ishioda, who okay. did the spell. She's also one of my favorites, Japanese. She pretty much worked up until she passed. She was in her 80s, I believe, when she passed about uh, two, three years ago. Wow. Um, Michael Kaplan, another amazing sci-fi costumer, um, costume designer, amazing people. Um, and then and on the contemporary like television side, um, uh, and specifically like I'm gonna break down some black costume designers yes. who you may not know did certain things. Um, so Michelle Cole, who is currently designing um, Blackish and um, Black Black AF, yeah. um, started out with Martin. Is one of her first shows. Oh wow! Um, so this, yep. Ceci, who is, was doing Dear White People and also um, recently Mixed-ish. Her, one of her first shows was Living Single. So, you know, these women have been in the game a long time and they're amazing and colleagues and I love them dearly because they always keep it 100 with me. <laughs> um, and so I just always love to tell people that those little facts about them, like, guess who did this guess who did that back in the day some of that my was... favorite stuff and they're still working you know yeah, um, so, yeah. <laughs> I am mind blown I did not know that I'm definitely gonna look them up and highlight that for this episode um because yeah. I always wonder like who did yes yeah. I love that so if someone is interested in getting into costume design what are some you know one or two tips or tricks or Charlize cheat codes that you would tell them to get started in this industry Sure. So what I would say is if you want to be a costume designer, um, you need to leverage your personal network. I would look into wherever you live. If there's a film school there, um, contact the film school because people are always shooting short films and you need work. You need to work. You need to build a portfolio. Um, and so I would start there. It's a two-part thing. So start there, but also assist for as long as you can. Mm -hmm. um, I still assist. Like right before I did Judas and the Black Messiah, I was assisting on a TV show for a while just because it's always, I always learn new things, learn new things and meet new people when I assist, right? Um, I don't really have to assist anymore. If I want to assist, it will be just same thing, learning new things, you know, working with like, maybe a designer who does like a bunch of like sci-fi or Marvel and that's an area I want to get into. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I would say be humble and like assist because that's how you learn in this industry, assist intern, like do whatever you need to do to get your foot in the door, particularly for those of us who don't have an end, we don't have a family member, you know, so you need to like work and assist. So at the same time as you're building your portfolio and building a network, with like, you know, film school graduate students and things and people like that, you need to also be assisting and doing those two things will like help your career to converge. Cause that's what, that's how I got here. I, um, I assisted for a, a while and then um, Shaka who did Jews in the Black Messiah, I did his thesis film. He was oh, in grad school at NYU, yeah. he was ready, you know? Um, so that that's probably gonna be the best methodology to like get into this industry is like develop your own network work with film school students and also assist intern and do whatever you need to do to get 
you know, on set, work in a department for as long as you can. You got to this movie from, you know, assisting. It's like, this tip is what you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So the last question of the episode, the signature question that I ask all our guests at the end is if you had to write a chapter in a textbook on the history of costume design, what would you call it and why? I would call it... <laughs> I would call it um, safety pins and characters. <laughs> <laughs> and why would you name it that? I love the name, by the way. <laughs> um, so safety pins is probably like our most utilized tool in the costume department. Um, we use it to put tags on bags, on our garment bags, which hold all the information for the particular look. Mm-hmm. And we also use it in fittings. We use safety pins for everything to the point where when I wrapped my first feature, Newly Weeds, I tattooed one on my hand. Oh, that's a cool tattoo. <laughs> yeah. So safety pins and, and characters, because it's kind of like a double entendre, I guess, <laughs> like um, characters meaning like you're building characters, you know, through costumes, but the amount of characters you <laughs> encounter as a costume designer, working on set, working with different personalities, different actors, background play like characters for I can imagine. I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> Yeah. Well, safety pins and characters. Uh, safety pins and characters. I love it. I love it. So, um, before we say our goodbyes, can you tell people how they can, where they can find you, and how they can support you and champion you in all your greatness? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'm on um, Instagram as at Charlize Antoinette. Um, C H A R L E S E. A-N-T-O-I-N-E-T-T-E. My website is charliseantoinette.com. On Twitter, I'm Charlize Designs. Yeah, I'm on IMDb under my name, Charlize Antoinette, if you want to look at my, my full credit history. And um, my d- database is Black Designer Database, blackdesignerdatabase.com. Um, and I support programming at the Broadway um, the Boys and Girls Club located on Broadway, which is the Greater Northeast Ohio chapter so if anybody wants to donate to that program you can at that location just write design you and your memo um what else I do a lot of stuff follow me yeah that's me in a nutshell um always busy love learning new things yes yeah Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me, for sharing your journey into costume design and your process through um, Judas and the Black Messiah. So I really appreciate your time. I'm excited to see all the other wonderful things that will unfold for you in your career. It's wonderful to see you blossom and inspiring to me. So I really appreciate your time today and I can't wait to see what's next. Thank you. And that is the conclusion of episode three of season two on the history of costume design with Charlize from Judas and the Black Messiah. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. As I promised at the beginning, I have a very special announcement, which is that that wasn't in my textbook has our first physical product we will be selling bookmarks you heard me bookmarks on our website 
launching in April. So make sure that you go to that wasn't in my textbook.com and sign up for our email list. So you get all the exclusive pre-order coupon code info in your inbox before everybody else. And so you don't you want to miss this. It's going to be good. The bookmark is so fire. If you're on the email list, you'll get it before anyone else. Cause y'all special. Shh, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> if you haven't already, if this is your first time listening to the episode, please make sure you subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review. That's how we get ranked on whatever streaming platform you're listening to. That's how we get our views up so other people can see us and listen to us and we can grow this community of dope learners who are just trying to recreate and reimagine history. Now, (laughs) don't forget to come back on Friday, April 8th. Our bi-weekly podcast is back in the game. So not this Friday, the following Friday. And yeah, I can't even believe I just said April 8th. Like when do we get into April? This year is going by so fast and now we got vaccines. So I don't even know what summer's going to look like. Anyway, we're going to be talking about a good juicy history top on April 8th. So come back and make sure you're following that wasn't in my textbook all over the interwebs. Sign up for our email list on our website. And again, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, remember, knowledge is power.